our first Sunday together, I was planning, which means hopefully remembering, which if it doesn't get written down, it's a long shot. And it was around Thursday or Friday, and I was driving around, and I remembered rummaging around in the basement oh, months ago, and I remembered coming across a brand new unopened package of party poppers that we obviously had bought, I'm going to say, maybe a decade ago for the grandchildren for when they were coming up on a Christmas or a New Year's. Who knows? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring party poppers, and when I do my sermon, I'm going to... But, of course, I didn't write them down. And then I thought, well, even if I had remembered, where in the world in that basement are they? You know, I think Jimmy Hoffa may be down there. I'm not sure. Anyway, Happy New Year again. And at the auspicious beginning of each new year, it seems to me that symbolically and frequently in actuality, in real life, it becomes a time of regrouping. It becomes a time of repledging or revowing or recommitting and all too often refailing. How many times do we play that little game of New Year's resolutions? And so in our minds, we kind of start going over the previous year. We make note, maybe mentally anyway, of our successes. But what always looms and kind of takes the spotlight is not our successes, but our failures, which means keying in on those failures. And what we often walk away with is a sense of frustration with ourselves, if not disgust. And it seems like we should or would learn from our mistakes more efficiently than we would learn from our successes. But again, reality doesn't often bear that out, does it? I mean, how many of us keep making the same basic short list when it comes to New Year's resolutions? And again, I'm not talking about writing them down, although maybe you are a list person and you do that. But go back in your mind, you think about, and maybe you didn't even formally say, okay, here's my resolution for 20. But rather you just said, you know what, this coming year, I'm, I'm going to, doggone it, I'm going to get a handle on this, or I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to start doing this, whatever it is. But if you look back over the last decade, if you had even five things on that list, how many of those five things just keep recycling year after year after year? Don't we tend to, and I hope I'm wrong, but don't most of us tend to keep making the same old basic short list of resolutions that we're going to do certain things differently year after year? I'm going to eat more and diet less. Wait, no. I mean, I'm going to eat less and diet more. Or, you know what? This year, blast it anyway, I am committing myself to cutting down on my time on Facebook to only six hours a day. I can quit any time I want. And in our efforts to become better, what happens is we often become quite introspective. And we start analyzing the deep roots of why do I go back again and again for seconds and thirds when I've said, look, I'm going to take one helping dinner time, one port, and that's it. When I'm done, I'm done. But no, 
And we come back to the same old thing or we start making up excuse after excuse for why I can't and maybe even shouldn't exercise today. There's always tomorrow. If we would just simplify it all, and by that I mean simply being honest with ourselves and just stop doing those things that have a proven record of failure, wouldn't we be a lot better off? That's good counsel. (laughs) You know, Nike made Just Do It a multi-million, even billion dollar slogan, right? So maybe we need to come up with 2018. (laughs) Our new church slogan for the year will be, Just Stop It! Maybe somebody could come up with a logo. I don't know. Well, we're in 1 Samuel. And if I'm a Philistine taking stock of the year behind me, I'm saying to myself, (laughs) note to self, New Year's resolution, when it comes to messing around with the God of the Hebrews, just stop it. The Ark of the Covenant had been in the region of Philistia now for about seven months. And instead of bringing the Philistines good luck like they thought, Instead, it was incessant catastrophe. And why was that? Because the Ark of the Covenant was not a good luck charm. There was nothing inherent, nothing intrinsic to the Ark that made it special or powerful or magical. It was rather part of God's plan. It was God's symbolisms and God's use of the Ark that made it special. Israel was not who they were because of anything they brought to the table. God tells Israel categorically, lest they get on their high horse sometime in history, that look, I didn't choose you to be my people because you were the largest or the greatest of all people on the earth. In fact, quite the contrary, I chose you because you were the least. They were special by God's peculiar declaration saying that they are special, and he entered into relationship with them. So the Philistines have captured the hallowed ark of God, believing that in doing so, they in some way have captured the God whose ark it was. And in their minds, controlling the ark apparently meant necessarily controlling the God that was behind the ark. Well, how did that work out? Chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. The Philistines of Ashdod decide that the solution is to relocate the problem. Well, we'll continue. Verse 8. So they sent and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of God of Israel around. And after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Well, shucks and by golly, geographical relocation of the magical ark didn't improve anything. Ashdod and Gath 
must apparently not be the right place for the ark. So again, stop it. So they do another geographical relocation. Although this time the trail of calamity that's following the ark precedes its arrival. Verses 10 and 12 through 12. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out saying, they've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. Something like that. And they sent therefore, and they gathered all the lords of the Philistines. And they said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So after seven months of the same failed solutions, all of them disastrous, they realize they need to stop it. And so they seek yet again the counsel now of the priests and the diviners. Beginning of chapter 6. Well, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how shall we send it to its place? All right, a thought here. When the human heart resists the intrinsic, the God-given knowledge of God that Romans 1 tells us he has placed in every heart, God becomes not someone to be worshipped, but he becomes a matter. He becomes an issue. He becomes a problem to be corrected. You see, it was true in the Old Testament, and it continues right on through the timeline of history into the New Testament, and I contend that this is the salient issue of our day. In the Gospels, when God took on flesh and dwelt among us, he was a problem. He was a royal pain to the religious leaders of the day as well as to the non-religious leaders. In Matthew 27, toward the end of Jesus' life, we see now God standing before Pilate. God, not the person to be worshipped, but God, the problem to be resolved, is standing before the civil magistrates. The crowds are clamoring for Jesus' head. And Pilate's wringing his hands and literally washing his hands. And Pilate is doing his darndest to get Jesus released. But you see, the presence of God in the midst of humanity is just too convicting. The presence of God in the midst of humanity is too condemning just by his very presence. So Pilate attempts to reason with the mob from a factual, from a logical and from a legal standpoint. But they'll have none of it. There's been nothing but fake news being spread for months about this Jesus. And the people, the masses, under the powers of darkness are furious without even knowing why. Sound familiar? When people do not bow their knee and worship to the living God, the living God who came solely for their benefit becomes a problem to be solved. First, the Philistine crowds ask their leadership, okay, so what are we going to do with the ark of God? And then the leadership asks the priests and the diviners, what are we going to do with the ark of God? 
And now Pilate in the gospel, thousands, hundreds and hundreds of years later, is in a pickle on the horns of a dilemma, asks the crowd, what shall I do with the incarnation of God? In our day, our rejection of the Almighty isn't quite that blatant. No, it's a bit more subtle. Today, we merely redesign, refashion, and recreate the Almighty in our image and likeness, domesticating him into a God that we can, that we can like and a God that we can manage and a God that we can control. And so those aspects of the God of the scriptures that we don't like, we simply eliminate them. No, that, that, that's, that's not who God is. That's not who my God is. My God doesn't think that. Well, my God doesn't do that. But the God who we think we all crave is a God who is still as involved in the details of our lives as he was in the Old Testament. And we say to ourselves, okay, a God who's involved in every detail of our life, I mean, imminently, directly, immediately, verbally, visually, vocally, through angelic visitation, through miracle, through signs and wonders, that is the kind of God that... We need that. God would be the answer to all of my and all of the world's problems. Well, would it really now? That's very curious because you see, as we look at the scope of human history as it's played out in the Old Testament, not just in an anecdote here and there, but over thousands and thousands of years of history of God being involved with his people, is involved with his people in the very way that we are insisting is the kind of God that we need to solve all our problems. The text we are currently in with the Philistines is God acting the way we all seem to think would solve everything if he still did things the same way. And yet we know And we got a long way to go in in 1 Samuel down the history of Israel with many more examples that Israel has already lost tens and tens of thousands of people precisely because God was involved intimately, closely, and immediately in every aspect of their lives. And how did that work out? Did it bring about heaven on earth? Did it bring about thy kingdom come? Was there peace among the nations? The elimination of discord and sorrow and heartache? God's system of rewards and punishment was precisely clear and precisely fair. There was not a speck of unfairness of God's arrangement for being the kind of God that so many today and then think that we want and need. Well, I like the perspective that Philip Yancey brings about in his long ago published book. I think the best is Disappointment with God. See, the pages are falling out. The binding's been long broken. The dust cover's almost disintegrating. It's been well used. Yancey writes, Imagine a world designed so that we experience a mild jolt of pain with every sin and a tickle of pleasure with every act of virtue. Imagine a world in which every errant doctrine attracts a lightning bolt while every repetition of the Apostles' Creed stimulates our brains to produce an endorphin of of pleasure. 
the Old Testament records a behavior modification experiment almost that blatant. God's covenant with the Israelites. In the Sinai Desert, God resolved to reward and punish his people with strict, legislated fairness. He signed the guarantee with his own hand, making it dependent on the one condition that the Israelites had to follow the laws that he laid down. He then had Moses outline the terms of this guarantee to the people. If they were obedient, Moses said, God would set them high above all the nations on the earth. They would always be at the top, never at the bottom. In effect, the Israelites were promised protection from virtually every kind of human misery and disappointment. On the other hand, if they disobeyed, they would become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive them. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. We jump ahead now to the New Testament. Years later, when the New Testament authors looked back on that history, they didn't hold up the covenant as an exemplary model of God relating to his people with absolute consistency and fairness. Rather, they said the Old Covenant served as an object lesson, demonstrating that human beings were incapable of fulfilling a contract with God. It seemed clear to them that a new covenant with God was needed, one based on forgiveness and grace. And that is precisely why the New Testament exists. The first six verses of chapter 6 is the prescription that the priests and the the wise sages of Israel and the diviners come up with for how to solve their problem of this God who is deeply, intimately, close up and personal involved in their lives. And it is a bit ironic. For Samuel 6, verse 3. They said, okay, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. Pretty inspired counsel from the counsel of the pagan nation. Yes, the Philistines were pantheists, And yes, in being pantheists, they were not godless. We know that because the ark went and started all the trouble when the ark was brought into the temple of their god, one of their many deities, Dagon. And so they had their own system of sacrifice and their own kinds of offerings to bring for this, to this, that, and the other thing, depending on the god and the offense and all of that. But in light of our doctrine of inspiration with which we come to the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God, 
we have to take that and see it being reasonable to believe that this tells us something important about the Philistines. And what I'm talking about is the specific designation of them bringing a guilt offering. You see, what what the Philistines weren't guilty of, I don't believe, is that they had never taken the ark in order to be an affront to the deity of the Hebrews. Rather, they took it simply in an act of ignorance as the spoils of war. And I say that because the text could easily have mentioned only that when they returned the ark, they had to take an offering, be it ever so generic. But again, our text, which is inspired, explicitly delineates the guilt offering, which is explained in Leviticus chapter 5, telling us that the guilt offering was that kind of offering that was to be offered up specifically for sins that were committed in ignorance, sins that were committed unintentionally. So it's interesting to me and telltale that they are told to bring a guilt offering with the ark when they return it, meaning they had sinned, obviously, but it was not done with intention. So again, I just don't see the Philistines making a statement about the inadequacy of the Jews' God or making fun of him when they claimed the ark and took it for their own. In fact, if you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about this, the Philistines were awed when they heard the jubilant cries and celebration of God's people when the ark was brought back in having been gone for a long, long time. And they heard the joyous celebration and they said, what is that noise? And they said, that's the sound of the ark coming back in because they understood that God had re-entered their presence, had come back into relationship with his people. So the guilt offering accompanying the ark is to be comprised of golden rats and golden tumors. Now that seems odd. I don't know if you've ever received a nice 18 carat, or in this case, 24 carat gold pendant with a nice little replica of a golden tumor on the end of it. Or perhaps a pair of of golden rat earrings, maybe. I'm pretty sure, however those would come, that they don't arrive in that special little blue box that are so popular with some. So why that detail of such an odd offering? Well, to make sense of this, let me backtrack for a moment and go back to chapter 5, right after the ark had been placed in the temple of Dagon, the chief deity of the Philistines. And the idol was found face down on its belly two mornings in a row, which was not coincidental, but it was in fact an act of God. The Almighty was showing the Philistines that their gods are nothing but powerless pieces of fabricated, humanly fabricated junk. That there is only one God, and his name is Jehovah. And just because I like to always keep my finger on the pulse of culture when I'm reading the scriptures, little side note, so much for one of today's cultural monuments that dare not be defiled, and that is the one called Respecting All Religions. Scripture 
to the contrary. After the idol Dagon is brought to its knees, so to speak, God then brings great terror upon the Philistines by afflicting them with what I am going to contend is almost certainly the bubonic plague. Why do I say that? Because one, it makes perfect sense in the context for the offerings to be the images of rats, which are the classic vectors throughout history of carriers of the plague with the resulting tumors, which are textbook symptoms of the plague. On top of that, in verse 9 of chapter 5, it mentions the confusion. It mentions the panic that filled the Philistine cities as the plague was recognized for what it was. This wasn't just a mild little illness. Remember that it was the bubonic plague, rat-born, that wiped out 50 million Europeans in the 14th century, decimating, killing 60% of the population of Europe. So what is described in chapter chapter 5 fits perfectly, on top of which is that God's miracles frequently come through God's miraculous use of natural elements within our world. Meaning miracles are still miracles, but God can use natural elements of the world to make them miraculous and use them in miraculous ways. So meaning, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. So meaning, whenever we read some pretty strange or bizarre things in the scripture, and right away our mind wants to take us either to criticisms or to some light, frivolous kind of assessment, we need to think more carefully. So for example, I have to go back now with you to 1976, 77, 78, somewhere in there, and I'm I've just finished my bacteriology, parasitology, uh, education, rotation on my way to my, um, I almost said MDiv, Uh, not my MDiv, obviously, Uh, my medical degree in medical technology. I'm reading now the scriptures on that annual discipline that I learned way back then for maybe the second or third time. And as I'm reading in the book of Numbers, I read the episode in there where once again, God's people are wayward and God brings harsh discipline upon them to try and get them to turn back. And he sends what, what in the interpretation of our Hebrew are called fiery serpents to, in the language again of scripture, which is very pictorial, more than specific, and bites them and they were dropping like, like, uh, like flies. I mean, they were dying by the hundreds. And then God says to them about these fiery serpents, all right, what I want you to do is I want you to make a golden serpent and I want you to rise, raise a standard and I want you to hang that serpent over the standard. And any who are bitten by the fiery serpent who looks up at that, ser- that serpent, if you will, on that cross, because how do, you, how do you drape something that's long and squiggly? You can't just put a pole in the ground. It's not going to stay up there. If you make a standard across it, it's going to be up there and just hang by its own weight. And so that far in the, in the past, God was already showing the idea of taking and casting your eyes upon the cross for your redemption from the sting of death. All right, that's just a little bonus, no charge for that. So going back to 1976 or so, so we're talking, I'm reading about the fiery serpents. And lo and behold, as soon as I read that, my eyes went, because instead of thinking about fiery serpents, no wonder people think the Bible is whacked out and it's a bunch of mythology and, and thrown together things that, you know, whatever. They're just stories and everything else. I mean, fiery serpents? What are we talking about? Fiery dragons, fiery this, that? 
But to me, who just finished parasitology, I went, holy cow, fiery serpents. It's Dracunculus medianensis. Oh, yes, I know you laugh. But I'm serious. You see, Dracunculus medianensis, which is a parasite that happens to go into your body and it becomes a worm, okay, up to three and a half feet long. Isn't that exciting? I'm already feeling things here. And then it starts to make its way out through one means or another. <clears throat> All right? It's called the fire, fiery serpent. I mean, even to this day, it's called a guinea worm as well. So again, looking at the pictorial nature of Hebrew, fiery serpents, holy cow. You know, could this be, in fact, this serpent that happens to grow three and a half feet long, and that's what the issue was. All I'm saying is, and I'm not going to die on that hill, by the way, okay? The point is, one, we don't have to take fantastic interpretations of the things of scripture sometimes there are very reasonable explanations for things that seem bizarre and strange that are just outside of our little puny realms of knowledge on the other hand god very well could have sent them dracunculus medianensis remember that the next time you're in conversation with somebody and you're stuck just say well okay so what's your view of dracunculus medianensis and you'll have it you got the upper hand walk away mic drop it's done Maybe not. Where the heck was I? Okay. So no wonder the Philistines are eager to get rid of the ark and to figure out how to appease this mighty, awesome God of the Hebrews. Well, on top of all this, now there's this nagging human curiosity to know if this is really this meaning all the things that have happened to them, all the calamity and the plague that's come upon them and everything, is this really the hand of the God of the Hebrews against them, or is this all purely coincidental? And so again, they are advised by their diviners. Verses 7 through 9, for Samuel 6. Now therefore, they say, take and prepare a new cart, and two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch now. See if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, and, then he has, and if it has, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened by chance. So the Philistines have their Tiffany boxes all wrapped up with their crazy jewelry in it to take it as the guilt offering, and they grab two milch cows. The passage continues. The men did so, and they took two milch cows and hitched them to the cart, and they shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and they did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now. Why, again, these crazy details? Milch, what the heck is a milch cow? I had to Google it. But I remember somewhere in the distant, not too distant past, that Don Cole, one of our elders, you, you know, is in children's ministries right now. 
I believe I remember him talking and saying something about milch cows, but I couldn't remember, so I had to Google it. And what a milch cow is, is a, is a mommy cow that is in the active process of nursing her young. And so they were advised to take the milch cows, and they've never had a yoke on them also, which means they'd be a little crazy because they have to be trained to do that sort of thing, and hook them up to the cart, and we're just going to let and see where this, these uh, cows go. Now, a milch cow that is in the process of nurturing its young, of feeding them, does not leave them voluntarily. It's just one of those wonderful instinctive aspects of creation. And so they're saying, look, if you do this, you take these kind of cows, they've never had a yoke on either, and you put them in there, and if it goes to the place where they're supposed to be going, then we know this was in fact by the hand of God. And if not, then we know it was coincidence. Well, we read how it ended up. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, that would be God's people's, and they raised their eyes and they saw the ark and they were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it in which were the articles of gold and put them on the large stone and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. Now, when the five lords, there were five leaders of the Philistines who had escorted these cows there to see what would happen and to make sure that it got where it was supposed to be going. When the Lord of the Philistines saw it, they were done and they returned to Ekron that day. God's hand in human history. Certainly he does, I want to say he does things differently today and yet he doesn't do things differently. So allow me to speak out of both sides of my mouth. He is still up close and personal. He is imminently, that means like immediately involved with the affairs of the world. We just don't see them in the way that they were. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But as we are entering into 2018, whether we are talking about an individual, just one person, I mean, meaning you, me, now, or whether we are talking about a whole community or whether we are talking about a nation or even the world, peace with this almighty God has never been a matter of earning God's favor. It is a matter of getting, of God setting his favor on each one of us by his gracious and loving and merciful and compassionate choice to bring us to that place of salvation through Jesus Christ. And once that takes place, then the transformation that comes by virtue of the infilling of the Holy Spirit begins a lifelong process that continues till the day we take our last breath, conforming us more and more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. So don't get bogged down when you read the Old Testament. The person who came up to me between the services and said they finally finished the Bible this year, it was the first time, and now they have lots of questions. (laughs) I laughed out loud. I said, well, gosh, really? No. I said, look, I've been reading this thing now for over four decades. 
And I have more questions today than when I started 40-some years ago. So welcome to the club. Don't get bogged down. The things that are in there, you know, the dimensions of all this stuff and everything else that I still go, really, Lord, just get me through numbers and then I'll do the rest of the way. I don't know why they're there, honestly, but I know they're there for a reason. But I can look back and I can see so many times when things that I had no clue about, years, decades sometimes later, all of a sudden, wow, I get it. I get it. But just fill your mind and your heart with God's inspired counsel every day. And don't beat yourself up, not if, but when. You don't make it every day. I don't make it every day. But let that be your goal. Let that be your resolution. And as far as all the distractions that get in the way and everything else, just stop it! Let me have you stand, Jim Higgs. I'm going to ask you to come up and close our time. You probably didn't notice the uh, chaos that went up here. Uh, I caught my finger on this slant. Juice went all over the Bible. I kind of wiped it as, as quickly as I could, and I didn't get it all. Next in command would take care of it, and he did fine. All right, what I'm going to ask you to do is something a little bit different. Everybody on this side move towards the center. Everybody on this side move towards the center. We're going to join hands together, and we're going to have a community prayer. <clears throat> I have done very well. See, it's funny when you have a microphone, you're in charge. All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're here today to celebrate this day with you. Father, we pray for the person that is standing aside of me this morning. Pray that they know you, they've accepted you, and that Jesus is the Lord of their life, O oh God. We pray for those that aren't here today because of this terrible cold that is going around. Pray that their recovery be quick. Father, in 2018, may we be drawn closer to you and realize that we are one church and one body with each other. And we love each other so much that we're here today standing at the side of somebody that you love. And we love them also. In Jesus' name.